Welcome to Conversamos. My name is Francisco Escobar, and I'm the host and content creator of this show. Today, we will discuss about decolonizing versus indigenizing. How do they differ? How are they practiced? And why is there an importance? All here on Conversamos. Yo, is it that wrong? I'm making a song, I'm taking it back for the platform that I formed. Music's helping me transform. Before we begin, we would like to give a business spotlight to Brooklyn Warmy Designs, a New York-based Andean-centered business that was founded with the intention to build a community that honors ancestry and beauty. Check their jewelry, totes, and shirts out at www.brooklynwarmydesigns.com or on Instagram at Brooklyn Warmy Designs. Now with our first question, to the panelists, how do you indigenize and decolonize spaces? The first part of inter- internally, uh, I, what that means to me is spirituality. Uh, I identify as more of a indigenous way of spirituality. Uh, I respect everyone's way uh, you know, everyone's choose whether they want to be Christian or Muslim or atheist. Uh, but when it focuses on indigenous, uh, I, that's where I do uh, dance Azteca, Aztec dancing as a form of reconnecting to our ancestors. Um, doing that, uh, that's like one way of spirituality. I did take a, a, a trip to Teotihuacan, uh, Mexico City. Uh, a number of years ago that I treated it as like a kind of like a Mecca pilgrimage. Um, so that's one way internally. Uh, and I continue to do practices, meditation. And, you know, we have white sage over here in California, which is indigenous over here and it's exported all around the world. And uh, it's like a very spiritual type of sage. Thank you. And we're going to go with Alba then Arnold. I had a couple things to say about um, the words first and how for me, decolonization is very literal. Um, It it is not metaphorical like Eve Tuck has said um, in in, in educational spaces and in in her writing. Um, So decolonization, it has to be unsettling. And so one of the things that I think about um, the type of work that I do is anti-colonial. And so for example, I indigenous spaces, uh, starting with cuentos, starting with our stories, our past, um, starting with our food, you know, what ties us to our land is our animals, our food, our condor, our, our llama, our platano, our, our yuca, um, our music, you know, our pan flute is very important. Um, the region of Ecuador where we're from, Manaví, is very specific with cuisine. Uh, we know that we've been colonized by the Inca and um, by Europeans and other groups. And so, you know, we're pre-Indian uh, indigenous people. And so like we've lost our languages, like the only language, you know, a lot of the native language are Aymara or Quechua now in Ecuador, which I, I speak a little, I know very little because of music and movies and stuff from growing up. And so I try to keep, I, I'm trying to keep learning more as I can um, since those are the only native languages that exist right now in the area. Um, and so that's one way, but in, in, in academic spaces, professional spaces, I literally interrupt when I can, you know, like I don't, we're not Christian. We never were in my family. Nobody in my family, we were not raised that way. And so that's one of the ways that I keep, you know, my faith and my spirituality, I keep at the forefront. Um, and so I try to maintain traditions. You know, we have our special food for, 
you know, for, for when there's death or when there's mourning, we have special food when there's a celebration. And I've learned how to cook almost all my mother's dishes. You know, I know how to make a lot of uh, manabita food. Um, clothing is difficult, you know, because everything's kind of appropriated now. Um, but right back, Ecuador, I always try to, you know, spend money in Otavalo or some of the, the towns that are known for their artisan artisanship. And so I try to always support, you know, I make sure that all my money goes to either black or indigenous folk. And so I know that like in New York, that's a lot easier to do. Um, but that's one of the ways that I literally decolonize and indigenous spaces is by bringing in, I always try to share the record and to share people, uh, different languages that I understand or speak. And, um, I try to throw in those indigenous knowledges as often as I can in my scholarship. I use, you know, I throw in um, conversations about how, how we do uh, um, some of these, like these ways of honoring Pachamama and how existing together. Um, and so I just throw that in as often as I can to interrupt, uh, which I call anti-colonial just because decolonial to me means giving the land back. And so to me, decolonial has to be very literal and we don't have the power to do that yet. Indigenization and decolonization are very different for me because both of them, both of them separately don't make sense in many ways. One, because if you, for me, indigenization, I didn't, um, personally, I only came to be like, to recognize in my own Quechua and Aymara, like um, family history through like the oral accounts and just like speaking with my family. Like, well, my dad speaks Quechua. So I didn't know what that was until I was about 15 when, or 14 when I went to Bolivia and then spoke to my grandma and she did not speak a lick of Spanish. And I was like, and I asked her like, yo, where's my, where's my dad? Because it was one in the morning. And I was like, I'm hungry. Can I get some eggs? Can I get some water? And she's like, Imata, which means what in Quechua. And I was like, oh my God, I'm an orphan here. I'm completely lost in my own country. Yeah. Even though it was still strange for me, like coming from the diaspora back to Bolivia and then realizing how little I had known, how, how the little things that I had known were still far too little. And then asking my grandmother, like, like, no, uh, and my mom, like, yeah, where's my grandfather from? Since he's in Bolivia, where my grandmother from my mom's side is here, and she and she was like, oh yeah, he's from this community, like they spoke Aymara, like, and I was like, wait, really? And it's these types of things where, like, in Latin American Latin American communities, especially the immigrant community, indigenous identities, this open is this like little secret that you keep in a box because if you've mentioned it you reduce the quality of your family just because you are indigenous or you have spoken an indigenous language. And those racial dynamics is, exist across the Bolivian community, across like all, all of the Latin American communities. You're indigenous, you're somehow wearing feathers and like uh, you're wearing feathers and you don't know what an iPhone is. Like you're just backwards. So mm -hmm. that type of indigenization is not, for me, is not just, knowing that I'm indigenous, but learning the language, learning the philosophies behind the languages. Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to learn Quechua when, like throughout my university career with a great Quechua professor, Odi Gonzalez. And it's a different variant. It's the, Cusco, it's the one from Cusco, where my, whereas my dad speaks the one from Cochabamba in Bolivia. So I speak Quechua. Like I can, like I can speak like very simple Quechua, but it's a start. Um, but that type of process of knowing what in, what that like the language goes into decolonization because if you don't know the philosophies behind the land itself, you're just going to copy Western models to once you own the land and then create the same problems that create climate change that create problems of like exclusion of like 
higher like social hierarchies where you exclude a, where you exclude a lower class that works for you instead of everyone knowing that like mother earth provides for all so we can all like exist on the same class um for dominicans the question of indigenousness is really um troubled because of the ways that indio identity is used to deny or not really deny but resist reject deny and also be just completely ignorant of african ancestry and so you know from the 19th century to the present we are all indios um and which basically meant sort of mixed but it's been taken in in various directions thanks to the trujillo dictatorship in the 20th century so um for me indio is is um or to be indian then has these problems associated just because of that history in the Dominican Republic. But I think in my everyday life there are rituals and practices that we have that aren't necessarily just African just of African origins but of indigenous indigenous origins. So I'm always thinking through about how our African descended communities are also the keepers of indigenous traditions especially in the Caribbean when so many indigenous peoples were disappeared decimated when the populations were decimated that in fact it may have been africans and their descendants who held on to some of those traditions and those knowledges um and i think professionally in my classes you know working on our san gabriel mission work we worked with local tongva elders on that um always in constant conversation with them and actually they lead the conversation and so part of it too is centering indigenous knowledge centering questions that come from indigenous peoples when looking at their history um obviously land acknowledgement is a huge part of how we practice indigenous behavior and decolonial anti-colonial thinking um and um so yeah i think that's how we we try to do this um uh, at the at the level of the everyday shawn and then frank thank you Um so I'm actually going to show you the method of business modeling that I've been developing for the last 2 years. Okay. Um so it's a regenerative medicine wheel. Um So um basically what I do is I kind of blend um So um So what I do is I blend spiritual traditions with business education working with indigenous principles um as well as some of the world um colonizing traditions especially christianity given that um i'm based on bodigan and also um i was born and raised and spent so much of my time in indigenous communities and other indigenous um led movements for social change um including getting our land back and um financial reparations for the harms we faced from um you know pandemics that started long before this one so um for me I've been really focusing my practice um personally on rematriation. So um yes I'm interested in decolonization of course so so much of what I do and financial reparations is the heart of the method of business education. Um I'm now teaching but personally for me to come back to the earth is my mother and think about what are the stories that um Boricuan tells and what are the stories that we as Boricuan tell where we travel or where we live. um including that so many of us um live off the island um it so Boricuan is the big island of Puerto Rico which is um a small archipelago of um three inhabited islands 
in the Caribbean. Um, so for me, really, like, um, in the year and a half I've been here, um, getting to know the names of the birds and identifying their song, um, all the different trees that I can identify now. Um, I'm in charge of the Huerto Comunitario, the, the community garden here in my community. Um, and so we're working with kids and we're learning how to, um, to, to raise, you know, um, baby trees and food. Um, so those to me are really, are just in getting to know elders um, and caring for them and doing their shopping now when they can't leave the home, yes. decolonization, anti-colonialism, you know, reparations. But for me, figuring out that way back into my heart in a world that just wants to obliterate us, I just, so that's what I do. Thank you. Uh, Frank and then Lewis. Yeah, so for me, uh, like internally, I have this conflict because I am so, you know, at least two to three generations removed from my indigenous identity. Um, linguistically, I don't have a connection, I don't have knowledge of it, right? And then as an educator, I think that knowledge is really important. So academically and professionally, I've kind of focused on, you know, the narrative of being able to explore who you are, uh, find that within yourself, and then also be able to share some, you know, part of the customs um, for people. Like, a big part for me was food. Um, I actually ran a culture club in my junior high that I, that I teach in, and one of the things that I taught them was actually how to make tamales. And while I was making the tamales and giving them the recipe, I, you know, recited the, the story about how we're descended from maize and, and the the Mipa culture is so important for us, uh, for, you know, Mesoamericans, particularly from what is present in Mexico right, right now. And so that is kind of like my, my, part, my contribution that I think that I can logistically do is, uh, you know, be able to tell stories, be able to tell my own family story, uh, history, um, larger history, and then also, you know, be able to translate some of those cultural stuffs like food, particularly, um, you know, to be able to educate not only ourselves about our own um, origins, indigenous origins, but other people who might not be of indigenous origin, so that, you know, some of this decolonization, indigenization work can actually be done. As a uh, educational approach, I, uh, I had a bad experience in my master's program where I tried to talk about my Puerto Rican history and the professor kind of came out of her face and was like, where are you getting your, your knowledge from? Where are you getting your information from? And I looked at her and I was like, excuse me? Like, this is history, you know? This is my history. And I think I know a little bit about my Puerto Rican history more than you did. And they made a whole big hullabaloo about it. And I had to go see the dean and everything. Mm -hmm. So for me, I kind of wanted to uh, learn more about it and, like, and identify with that identity more. Uh, it became like a, like a mission for me, especially because I'm, I'm really pale and a lot of people think I'm white. And I'm like, no, I'm just kind of sick, you know? So it's, uh, so that's kind of the way I approach it. You know, just learning as much as I can, identifying with it as much as I can, because I see it in the faces of my family, my cousins, my grandmother, you know, and I'm like, why don't I look like that type of thing? You know, I'm looking at my, my skin and I'm like, why am I so pale? And I'm like, 
you know, I come from these people, but yet I can't identify with that, uh, with that history. So that's kind of what drives me to learn more about it, to share it as much as I can and to express it as much as I can. So kind of going off of that, who, who has have experienced similar, um, well, that's just a lot, man. Um, kind of, kind of going off of that, um, who, who else have, have, have felt similar, um, reactions or just everything as I have, you know, um, Michael, would you like to go on that? Yeah, absolutely. I could definitely relate to your experience. Actually, like uh, I'm 29, and I remember like breaking through of like di- discovering my heritage. You know, understanding that my roots is native to Islam. I, you know, what what we call today woke. Uh, I remember in like when I was 21, I wrote this poem called "White Boy Chicano," and uh, so I could relate to. You know, not being Mexican enough, which is a different identity. Um, uh, but I guess what I'm trying to say, just so I can relate to the experience, I I'm actually really adamant, like adamant about um, not necessarily calling out, but when folks become cultural gatekeepers and purists, um, I know from speaking from my experience, like how I acknowledge of like when it comes to the dynamics of colorism and the way I look and being equally ambiguous, my indigenous experience is far different from a lot of y'all's, maybe a couple of similarities, but um, my thing is like, I don't know, like uh, I I know, even though I'm like ethnically ambiguous, I'm still gonna strive for my strive to my culture to my ancestors way of decolon uh, decolonizing uh and there's always haters um so yeah don't get me started with gatekeepers and purists <laughs> thank you then alba then arnold i have a lot to say about that because the academy is full of a lot of gross um i i was so it's been very painful it's been very painful for me um, because I've always been painfully aware of my otherness. I've always known that we were indigenous, uh, starting, like I said, with our food, our language, our ways of being, the way we talk to the land, the way we practice, um, or different faith and traditions. And so it's, it's just since I was a little kid, it's always, since the minute we left New York, we left New York when I was like five, um, and then I went back after college. And since then, it was like all of my schooling, all my teachers were white. You know, we know that like 93% of teachers are white women. Um, and so it was a constant battle for us. Um, and then going back to Ecuador and, and cause we go to, you know, we, we travel a lot back to our, our country and, and seeing, for example, the push of Christianity was something that was really tough, you know, but then it's also humorous because we see a lot of abandoned churches and you see the Bibles being used as like, um, table holding up the table or holding up the chair so you see how much the religion didn't influence you see that people call themselves catholic but we still honor pachamama in our way like we don't do it the way the christians told us Mm. to and going to academia so when my master's degree was okay because i was in new york and i feel like i had enough people on my side and, and encouraging me and supporting me to learn more and deeper um 
But then I got to Michigan for my PhD and it was, it was horrendous. You know, we had people saying that I need to identify with my black side more because of my phenotype. And I was like, okay, I know I have the African roots, but I'm not connected to that. You know, maybe some of our spirituality mixed, but like, I don't know where my Africanness is from. I know that I have curly hair. I know that I have, you know, the nose, whatever, but that I just never felt connected to that part of me. So then I was called kind of like a race traders. I don't know. It was really ugly. And it's like, yeah, but blackness isn't the same in Ecuador too. Like, it's not the same. Like, being African descendants as being a black American. I'm definitely not treated the same, even though I am still hated. Um, and then I had, I think to the, the peak of my dislike and of, for this horrible mistreatment was from actual um, people of color in the academy. So I had a, a woman of color, a, a, an Afro-Dominican woman tell me, Afro-Puerto Rican, sorry, tell me that it's violent for me to call myself indigenous um, or use the word Abiyala, which we use to call the land of the Americas. She said that that was violent, that I should call it Turtle Island. And I was like, but that's not my word. Like that's in English. And like, that's not our word for the land. Like, why would I use it? You know? And I remember that was just really horrible feeling because she kept saying that I was displacing indigenous people by being in Michigan. And I was like, but I don't own anything. and I have zero power. Um, and in Michigan State, you know, like the, the people who are in the indigenous groups and indigenous graduate program, not to throw shade at anybody, but the predominantly white passing and, and predominantly white folks that not only I understand that blood quantum is not a thing, right? I understand that blood quantum is not how you identify as indigenous. But these are folks that were blonde, blue eyed, both of their parents were European and they just found that one ancestor from like eight generations or 10 generations back, they like found out they were indigenous at some point in their life. You know, I literally met people that in their thirties found out that they were somewhere native and started claiming it. And that was very painful because it's I've been this all my life and I can never escape it. And I'm 35. So you're not going to teach me who I am. Um, especially not you white, you know, especially you not who's grown up white your whole life and just started using indigeneity for scholarships and publications. Wow. And so it's been really painful because I just had to remove myself from a lot of these spaces because there is a lot of that gatekeeping of like, Oh, well I learned all my traditions and it's like, yeah, but my tongue doesn't even exist. Cause there are a lot of people in the indigenous groups started taking up their languages. Um, which I can't, my language is gone. You know, all we have now is Quechua in our region, which I know a little bit of, but it's just not my, my main language. And, and Quechua is pretty, you know, I'm not saying it's easy, but I, I, I can understand a lot of it. Um, but a lot of gatekeeping in academia, but a lot of it is because of capitalism, you know, which I would say for me, it's the, it is the pandemic, you know, to me, it's not even COVID that's a pandemic. Capitalism is a pandemic and it's part of colonialism. And so to me, um, it's, it's, it's a big struggle in, in academic spaces, professionally, um, back to my community, you know, that's why I love New York so much. And I love spaces like that, right? I know where I can find my people. I know where my, my Nava restaurants are. I, I can connect and, and buy food and product from, from our lands and, and for the money to circulate back into our communities. And so the mutual aid that's been happening has been life-giving, has been life-giving to me reconnecting with folks. Um, and, and, and folks like you, I'm really glad, Francisco, thank you for inviting me to this. This was a, a great opportunity to, to get some of this stuff out and, Thank you all. Thank you. And let's now go with Arnold. Yo, thanks for that. Thanks for that, uh, Alba. Hayaya, for, as we say in Bolivia. Um, yeah. Like, what was it? And that's the thing. Like, well, mine hasn't been as traumatic, thankfully enough. But um, what in the Bolivian community, there's always this hidden secret that, like, 
there are indigenous people you just don't talk about them because like if you're indigenous oh you get the insults left and right and then up and down through the center and right and right through the cheek like and and what was it and when i went to college i realized like my college um i go to hunter college and i'm about to graduate from undergrad so but what's but what was like annoying about it was the lack of access for Latin American students. There's not even a Latin American Caribbean studies department. There are multiple departments that kind of take bits and pieces of the course. And then there's a Latino and Afro studies one. But if you want to learn about like countries from central and South America, it's pretty much absent at at Hunter. Mm -hmm. So there's always this absence for a lot of students who like come from central and South America and sometimes from Mexico who are like, what was it what does it mean to be latin american what does it mean to be from my country what does it mean to be like my race from this country or a conglomerate of these races like am i afro indigenous am i afro latinx am i like um what was it indigenous or like mestizo like whatever like and i kind of realized like there's just a and this is endemic around like the latin american community whatever like or people who fit within that whether they like to or not because there is a lack of philosophy there's a lack of understanding of the politics half the time we think most of our culture is just food that comes out of nowhere that could like politics yeah there was like simon bolivar and whatever and then kind of our presidents came in and then like we have latin america and it's like this weird happy family which is not but the lack of indigenous the lack of studies of indigenous peoples of the cultures the philosophies that go behind it like in, in Bolivia, most people don't know there's an intellectual history of, in, of indigenous intellectuals that stretch back at least from the 40s, where indigenous, indigenous folks and Marxists had this type of strange union together where they were both fighting for land reform and taking back the land to create an authentic form of nationhood. Uh, most people don't realize like indigenous peoples were, like when mo- I talk with some Marxists, they don't even know like, um, they have this white centric view of the working class or they have this like reductionist view of, Oh yeah. Well, the race doesn't matter in like, um, race doesn't matter if you're like a Marxist. Well, that's BS. Like if you're in Latin America, you realize race matters way too much, but it matters a lot. Race is race is the reason why you are a worker. You're, if you're indigenous, you're working in the mines, you're working in, in the campo, you're being paid pennies on the dollar. You're being paid, like, in the 60s, across the Andes, you would be paid pennies to carry people. You were literally mules to, like, the upper classes. And if you died because the, the, the weight of the carry was too much, well, it just happened. You just see, you, every once in a while, you see a dead native dude on the floor, but that's just the reality of colonialism. And the thing is, like, this history is very much invisible within both academia as well as like the consciousness of Latinx folks, indigenous folks. When I speak with indigenous folks in the North, they don't even know, they wouldn't even think I'm indigenous. They'll be like, oh, you're Latino. Well, what the hell does that mean when like, I have indigenous, indigenous roots and indigenous family? Why do you think my, I have brown skin? Like, why do you think you, why do you think we both have brown skin and similar features? Like, these, because we're both indigenous racially, but we come from different like national and maybe ethnic backgrounds. But that doesn't erase the fact that, like, indigeneities exist across the Americas, across Abiyala. Mm-hmm. And, like, the reason why I'm doing my channel, like, I started my YouTube channel, was, like, I wanted to bridge the gap between 
um, Latin American and North American native folks because there's just such a disconnect between both. Um, and that's why I'm like, that's why I'm going to go switching from like a future project was like, I'm going to do one on the connection between natives in the U.S. and the, Ir and the Irish anti-colonial movement. Then I'm going to move on to like the intellectual movements of Cusco during the 1920s that created, that was the basis for indigenous movements and land reform in the 60s across Bolivia, Peru, and Ecuador, like going back and forth because this is the type of education that like academia so loves to tout that it has, but has nowhere near like the educators to do it. Thank you. Let's go with uh, Deshaun and then April. Um, and thank you, Francisco. I didn't say this before, but really um, for inviting me in and for everybody for being here tonight. Um, so I benefit from white racial privilege and I also, you know, am I'm very feminine and I, you know, demonstrate a lot of the ways that um, femininity is prized. You know, um, and I'm conventionally attractive to many people, and um, and fuck that shit. I'm tired of it. I'm so tired of it. You know, like if I can use what I have um, been forced to embody um, to, you know, liberate um, and advance the liberation and the voices and the actions and the people who are working to abolish prisons and borders. Hell yeah. Like, why would I do anything otherwise? And my ancestors won't let me do anything differently than, than to follow in the light of liberation. That said, returning to the island of Bodikan has been so amazing and really hard. <laughs> so my Spanish is really crappy. So, <laughs> and, you know, I can justify that in all sorts of ways. You know, like, um, I wasn't raised speaking Spanish. Spanish is a colonial language. Um, I've studied, you know, French, Spanish, and Italian, and what, you know, in English um, to give me access to the colonial archive. That doesn't matter when I'm talking to grannies who are 85 and don't have teeth, but I do it anyway. And so for me, like, you know, whether I fit in or not, like, um, there's a learning there. So I know that there's a benefit when I'm working with the kids in my community that my Spanish is sloppy. It makes me more accessible, and it makes us on a more even par. If I want to, I can put on, you know, you know, my hood self and, you know, show off my tattoos. And I can also, you know, like, you know, button up and put on my eyeglasses and support my PhD. I'm 45. I've had my PhD for 15 years. Like, I may have insecurities all over the place, but I also know that I can walk in a room and pull anybody's pants down with my education. And it's not that I really want to do that. It's because literally, like, I've seen the brutality that everybody has talked about here manifest in so many ways, including by the brilliant folks of color who I've seen flee academia. You know, um, my undergraduate students, brilliant students who, who failed when it wasn't them who failed a class, but the system that failed them. Like, that's why I'm, you know, trying to do something radically different because there's nothing, nothing I want to sustain within this system. And, you know, I really um, thank you to the person who mentioned about, you know, indigenous colonization, the way in which, you know, like we have colonized one another. Um, I don't want to return to those systems either. You know, I'm a futurist. I'm a radical futurist using the, you know, ancestral wisdom I've been giving and learning within my own life. I want something so different from what we've experienced 
that, you know, if it takes me having like this kind of embodiment to help us get there, okay. Okay. Thanks. Even if I'm embarrassed by it. I went to grad school in Michigan as well, but I was in Ann Arbor. And these questions weren't um, front and center at that, at that moment, but I totally get what you're talking about. Because having worked um, among Native communities here in Southern California, um, and also I, it, it is very vexed for me, as I explained before, to claim uh, Native American or any Amer Native American identities is you know, especially given the vexed history of Indio and the Dominican, in, in the context of the Dominican Republic, the U.S. side of my family, I know is in, it has indigenous roots as well. But again, when you're of African descent, it's a completely different question. And I've worked with Cherokee people on this and the Cherokee freedmen, and I'm connected with movements among the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, the Cherokee to reincorporate African descended people into those nations. And it is a very problem. It is a very vexed and anti-black conversation. And so sometimes I face a lot of the questions I face is around anti-blackness within indigenous nations. And that's really in U.S. United States, right? Yeah. And, and somewhat also in Latin American context, but where I'm most familiar with it is here in the United States. I think that's a conversation we really need to have and how it, and because there are legacies of slavery and enslavement there that need to be talked about. I'm also, I also find myself in a conflict with students who want to build indigenous studies programs at uh, like in Claremont at the Claremont colleges, but it's very US Native American. And I'm always wondering what would the indigenous perspective from the rest of the Americas, how, what that might, what might that teach you? There's something there that you really need to understand. And the sister Alba talked about blood quantum. Like there's no blood quantum in Latin America. Like that's a whole kind of idea that just, what? <laughs> you can count your indigenous blood and then somehow you're an enrolled tribal member. Like that, that whole idea, but how that's sustained even when it's killing us. Like we will disappear in this country if we only go by blood quantum rules, how does that work? Right? But, you know, how do we, how can we, how can we be open to indigenous knowledge from the rest of the Americas in our understanding of Native American, US American, and also just kind of opening up. So we're talking about colonization within indigenous communities, but how academia also presents another colonization, even as we conceptualize who's in the room and who's here and who's in the conversation. So the, the follow-up question to even that in academia, but also this can go to um, economic systems, language, food. Um, what are all the distinct differences between indigenizing these spaces and institutions and systems versus decolonizing them? Like what would be the distinct difference of the two? And anyone can really I think that they're in the same continuum. And so that's when I think I think they all exist in the same space, like towards indigenous sovereignty. And I would I would like it to also be towards black liberty. Um, that's definitely a big bulk of my work is Black Lives Matter at school. Um, and so that that's a kind of the goal. But to me, I at least the way it's being presented and co-opted um, back to decolonizing must be literal. It must be an unliteral, unsettling, 
giving the land back, giving the space back, decision-making power has to be literal. Whereas indigenizing to me always, at least the way it's presented often in these different institutions, it, it always seems metaphorical. It seems like it's, it's like diversity, right? Like you're putting in an indigenous person or you're throwing in some indigenous authors in your syllabus. Um, you know, you're, you're thinking about, um, for example, instead of hierarchy, we can use heterarchies because in indigenous cultures, heterarchies have been used or, you know, Marx co-opting communism, right. For, you know, claiming it as, as his own when we know that he got it from the Iroquois and from other indigenous groups. And so instead of inserting indigenous knowledges, which is what I often see indigenizing presented that way, I see decolonizing as like the, the, the literal, um, what's it called, the literal material support for, for bringing back and, and empowering communities. Um, and so that's the only difference, but I, I know that that's, that's not everybody's definition, so I'm open to hear others. So, so yeah, we'll go Arnold and April. So indigenous peoples have had their own versions of maintaining different like nationhoods. If we're thinking about decolonization, about taking back the land, we... Uh, uh, one argument that I've heard, and it's the stupidest argument, is that if you're in if like you're thinking about indigenous decolonization, you're somehow thinking about like an ethno state, and this is just some mm. like weird liberal like, oh, in you're talking about race, oh, you're talking about like a racist fascist ethno state. I'm like, what what the hell are you talking about? Like, yeah. are you you have not read a book, have you? So, and what I realized was like, indigenous one indigenous decolonization, and there's that fear, it's that unsettling of. I'm a settler on your land. So does that mean I'm going to get thrown out? And I mean, not necessarily no, because in some ways, indigenous peoples have their own forms of multiculturalism or diversity. They have in Latin America, there is a new, there is a relatively new ideology of uh, plurinacionalidad or multinationality, which recognizes the different indigenous peoples as separate nations within the state, within the state. If Bolivia is a country, there are multiple nations within the conjoined under the state of Bolivia, as well as the other nations of the mestizos and the immigrant groups that come in here. Indigenous and in North America, you have the Two Rows Treaty, which was a wampum belt made by, I believe, the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois, to recognize white settlers. You can, or like white settlers, you can come in here and live peacefully next to us but we won't, we won't intrude into each other's culture as long as we respect each other's culture. So there's, so there's always these possibilities of, of, and the Taino who invited Columbus in thinking that he, he could have been someone who he could have had a human soul and actually been a civilized person and had treated people with respect just like the Taino had. So there are these examples of indigenous peoples allowing for, for anti-colonial national possibilities under their own like indigenous worldviews and the fact that like indigenous peoples can like would exclude black folks or white folks is a product of the racial uh, the racial exclusionary thinking of of europe that indigenous peoples have taken on either as a survival mechanism because they're trying to seem more civilized and gain benefits in in their respective countries or because they've just been fooled into thinking that their indigenous cultures and histories aren't uh, aren't satisfactory to exist in the 21st century which clearly they are and they're much more capable of including non-indigenous peoples in an ethical manner thank you arnold that was that was a really a really good point so 
um, back to, we've been having conversations on our campus. Um, so now, you know, you often hear land acknowledgements, right? And people will say, oh, that's, you know, a nice gesture, indigenizing. But some of my colleagues say, what about paying rent? <laughs> what about actually paying for being on the land? Like, so yeah, it's great to have the land acknowledgement, but what about a reparations to the people on whose land we are? So actually acknowledging through the payment of rent that you are occupying land that doesn't belong to you. And, and that I think is a really good way of, of thinking through the differences that we're thinking about indigenizing versus decolonizing. Because indigenizing can have, as Adva was saying, this kind of, oh, nice diversity inclusion and be totally co-opted by various institutions, but a decolonizing move would be to relate capital to power, right? Or relate all of this with power. And, and in this country, it's capital. So how do we undo that structurally and institutionally? And I think also to recognize that decolonizing and anti-colonial work is happening in lots of areas that we just not called it anti-colonial or decolonizing work. I'm thinking, you have here language, our notion of code switching, ebonics, um, our acceptance of Creole, right? And our Creole languages actually um, do decolonizing work. When you have Haitian Creole that has no gender, and we're in a moment where we're trying to think queer and non-binary, hello, Haitian Creole has no gender. And that's been around for hundreds of years, but no one's going to talk about it because it's Haitian and they're just poor and they have nothing to offer us. But that right there is what a radical language formulated in the 18th century that had no gender. That's a decolonizing anti-colonial move, right? So where can we recognize that kind of work happening in other and unexpected areas and bring those conversations together across ethnicity from the archipelago to tierra firme and you know, really have the radical vision that comes out of acknowledging that a lot of us and a lot of what we have and what we do have been decolonizing and anti-colonial. It's just that it's not called that or it's not recognized as such because it's coming from the wrong people, quote unquote. Oh, oh, I love that. Thank you so much. Because um, I think a lot about the Maroon communities, like those of us who stole ourselves from slavery and like, you know, hid in the mountains and the caves to kind of like create the path forward. So what you were just talking about, you know, like Haitian Creole, like that's one of those sort of like radical ways of liberating ourselves from even some indigenous traditions that don't serve us in terms of where we need to go. And I say that as somebody who is deeply invested in indigenous sovereignty movements and has been. And, you know, like, for three years, I was traveling all, you know, Turtle Island. I spent some time in what is now known as Colombia and autonomous indigenous communities there. So I don't say that outside of indigenous sovereignty. I just say that in terms of there are some traditions we need to maybe release. And, and language is a big one. And I say that as somebody who now lives largely in Spanish, which, you know, hurts my heart like every day, um, you know, certain things like, as much as I try to use, you know, letter E, you know, to, to gender differently, that doesn't, you know, translate to a nine-year-old kid or an 85-year-old grandmother. Like, there's just a lot to work through there. So for me, when I think about, you know, decolonizing and indigenizing, it's also, you know, for me, it's that, you know, 
way of thinking about how do we want to live moving forward in a way that's a lot more loving to who we actually are. And, um, and some of that too is, you know, recognizing the diversity and the differences among indigenous communities. Like I've learned so much from my Lakota, Nakota and Dakota friends and, you know, you know, comadres in the movement, you know, people who are doing really radical work around gender and sexuality, including healing from violence, which is part of a, of like a, a rethinking of, um, what we've been made to carry and speak, like the language that literally disallows us. And, and I want to end by saying this, this is the most academic conversation I've been a part of in about three months. And part of that is because I kind of like stole myself from academic spaces to really localize myself here, which isn't indigenizing and isn't rematriating, but really getting to know my neighbors in a new way. And um, it's been a challenge and a blessing and coming back into this space right now is certainly well-timed. And I'm just really grateful for all of you. Thank you so much. I'm so inspired right now. In Santa Barbara, we, you know, even though, even though I do Aztec dancing and I identify of the Pura Pecha nation and down in Mexico, uh, it's so important to do land, land acknowledgement to the Chumash and to be, and to be intentional to go that to do the outreach, um, to attend their meetings, their powwows, to learn their language. That type uh, of uh, acknowledgement and inclusivity is just so important when it comes to like the Aztec scene over here in Santa Barbara, California. And um, and just to bring up one uh, other example of work where um, how you how we got connected was my video Aslanin, Aslanin or better is the word uh, Aslan is the mythical homeland of the Aztecs, the Mexica, a very important mythical tale with the, the Chicano, Chicana, Chicanx community. And um, that has a kind of a uh, infamous or just a kind of a bad track record through history from the civil rights movement from the 60s to even now where, uh, where some folks... Uh, you know, Chicanos, folks of Mexican heritage uh, here in the United States, they dismiss the, the native indigenous people, which creates bad relations. You know, my, wow. my Chumash relations, you know, they personally told me how, how, how hurtful it feels to be, to not be acknowledged. You know, in Aztec dancing, we do a, a, a ceremonial dance. And when we started off, it's, it's super important to acknowledge the indigenous people, you know, in this case, the Chumash, um, and not to make generalizations and not to continue the, the colonizations of like bringing your, your heritage to this new, well, not, not necessarily your heritage, but to, to assume that your way of, your way of experience applies to the local community, the local indigenous people, uh, a local indigenous people. But I'll just finish it off with it there. Uh, it's just, how hard is it to be inclusive and uh, learn about different people? I, I mean, I like to, I would like to focus on decolonization because as like a structuralist, post-structuralist, I think if we're going to create any like significant change, it definitely goes at like restructuring those institutions that are the legacies of, of colonization, right? Um, my biggest ones, obviously, as an educator, I look at education and then narrative, the way we write our histories, um, 
the, the histories that are mid that are erased, right? All that erasure, I think, adds to this flattening uh, thinking of populations monolithically. I mean, in America, we like to think that, you know, we're this melting pot. I know in Latin, Latin, Latin American countries, especially like in Mexico, you know, we think about the, the Plaza Cosmica, right? Where we take the best from the whites, we take the best from the indigenous, and we get this super race of like, you know, incredibly intelligent and, you know, like phenotypically and just genetically better people. And these are all because of these technocrats that had that um, indoctrinization from colonial structures. And I think that's only the only the real way that we're going to be able to create any change that is significant. Um, like everybody, I really, I really appreciate, you know, inclusion, but are we adding bandages to symptoms of, you know, of a system? And if we don't change the system, like, do we, then do we open up these spaces where um, these beautiful cultures, right? all these different indigenous peoples are assimilated and are absorbed by the system as opposed to like become part of the system or they become the framework for a new structure in a new society going forward. So I just want to say amazing answers. Uh, Frank kind of took my answer. Uh, but for me, thinking about uh, decolonization, I think he's right where uh, approaching it from a educational standpoint, I think that's the way we have to think about it to identify ourselves with our indigeneity, learn about it and share it because in, in my findings, we're almost kind of not allowed to talk about our history and what has happened to us. And I don't just mean that in the Boricua sense, in the atrocities that the U.S. did uh, with treating us like uh, guinea pigs and, and, and making our women f infertile and uh, testing all these different uh, drugs at the time in the 40s and 50s on us. But I mean that collectively where we have to really share our history, uh, our native history together. And that's really, I think the first step of both decolonizing and, you know, decolonizing ourselves on our way of thinking and really coming to the forefront with our shared history, no matter where it's from, no matter if we, you know, identify as Quechua, Latin American, Afro, uh, Afro Latino, I think we all have to share our history and, 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 and make it like a, a patchwork quilt where we, we bring it all together and, and share it with, with one another and share it in the academic world. Because I, I find that in the academic world, they don't know anything about us, or at least they, they pretend not to, or, or we're shunned and we're said, we're told, oh, well, that's not true, that didn't happen. And, and like in my example before, oh, well, where are you getting your information from? It's kind of like not accepted. So for me, I think we, we really should start there and have a shared narrative of that type of history and what has happened to us. And then secondly, 
coming together, like things like we're doing now right here, coming together, sharing our stories, uh, sharing our uh, different uh, takes on our different cultures and realizing that we have more in common than we have uh, separate. You know, I think that's the first two steps. So having a shared narrative and then coming together more, I think those are where we need to really start. Nice. Uh, thank you, too, for sharing because um, in in because I've heard this a lot with like the Latino identity, Latina with the with the Latina identity, where it's the culmination of the African, Indigenous, and European. Um, and then to what Frank mentioned, the the like um, cosmica raza, right? Um, that that so that was created by Jose Vasconcelos, and he was. Um, and even his, in his own decolonial work, he was a big, also a, a pro-Nazi advocate and was an editor of, the, of a pro-Nazi magazine called Timon. Why I'm bringing this up is that like, while we are trying to find space to decolonize or even indigenize within ourselves and other places, what should we be mindful of so that our, not only that we're authentic in our approach, but we're accurate in how we are approaching these matters? One thing that's um, interesting about the Vasconcelos example is that he actually joined the Nazis during the 40s, which is like 20, like about 15 years after he wrote his La Jasa Cosmica. I think he had a type of um, a disillusionment once like he realized a lot of Mexican society had rejected his work. And then he just became a full on hardline Catholic and became a hardline like staunch like fascistic conservative. Um, but the thing that's interesting about it is that there, there were aspects of imperial of like a colonial, like a new colonial imperial type of ideology within La Jasa Cosmica that the only, that the only reason why the indigenous, um, side of Latin America mattered and mind you, he forgot about the African side and a lot of his, like in a lot of the work he did for the Mexican state, he was like indigenous and white Africans they don't exist in Mexico. You're like, and you're like, really, you're, you're one of the intellectuals in Mexico, really. But what, um, but what happened was, you see, like, the only reason why the indigenous part of, like, mestizo identity mattered was because it had the introduction of, of whiteness in it. And he viewed the Spanish, he viewed the Spanish heritage of, of, like, of race mixture, which was more, like, race, like, which was more rape and like sexual, uh, sexual genocide and conquest because it required, because it was to erase the indigenous claims to land and to like, and then use the mixed race peoples against indigenous peoples. Um, and indigenous people's bodies and like and cultures only mattered once they were mixed in with a higher culture that could bring them into a higher metaphysical realm of like, of um, universal human culture. So you already see some of the aspects of like him being susceptible to like um, uh, Nazi ideology, and it happens a lot in Latin America. But it's that first like view of viewing yourself within the within more of a Hispanic, Spanish, ultra conservative culture than it is with your indigenous culture. I guess like the first thing that comes up to mind is uh, pan Indianism, and just the uh, just kind of like the universal thing of just generalizations 
are just bad to critical thinking. Uh, and how hard is it to be inclusive? You know, how, how hard is it to be inclusive to identify as uh, of your ethnic tribe to you know, your, gen your gender neutral? Like how hard is it to be inclusive of the, of the people of where you're at? Um, I know that, that question is like really loaded for me and it's, um, it's, not, it's not a perfect thing. You know, one thing like I, I would bring up with my work is like I have this video um, on YouTube called is, is Michigan and Michoacan Related? It's a very one-on-one entry-level video. Um, and the reason why I, I, I made that is because I want that narrative of that connection of how our ancestors were connected to each other. I think someone said it in the previous question that we have to keep reiterating that we're not a monolith. And I think that's something that's very important. Um, our lived experiences are vastly different. Um, they need to be respected towards a common goal. You know, and for me, the common goal is indigenous sovereignty and black liberation. And so to me, if, if we can center that, um, then we can head on jump into conversations about anti-blackness, um, jump into conversations about actual material support for indigenous communities uh, in order to achieve liberation. Um, and we have to have the tough conversations. And so that's one of the things that we have to know that this is uncomfortable work. You know, for a lot of us that have been oppressed all our lives, you know, I think it's important to not become the oppressor. You know, Paulo Freire is known for, for saying, you know, it's important for us not to take on you know, a lot of people criticize capitalism and the minute they get power, they oppress other people. And so it's very important to not start functioning within uh, the systems that oppress us. And I think that that's, um, that's, that is really, really difficult um, work. And I think that there's little things we can do here and there that, um, for example, mutual aid, for example, bartering versus using money. Like we said, using Creole Haitian or using languages that already honor two spirit and, and beyond other genders and the range of sexuality. Um, so all of these things that interrupt the systems um, that are oppressive to our people on our land um, need to be highlighted, um, and we need to we need to keep um, we need to keep reiterating the fact that it, it, you know unsettling work is unsettling, right? So it, it's not going to feel good, and I think that that's my biggest issue with somehow you know, like the difference between like liberals and leftists, for example, like liberals like it polite, you know, and like we want to have everyone get along and we want butterflies and sunshine and it's like a big hippie movement um, of free love uh, where it's like, no, it's a lot of work because we need to reimagine space, like literal space, you know, and for me, the work I do, um, I do Black Lives Matter at school work and then I also do a lot of curriculum development um, as an educator and an artist and I use my art to kind of, um, and I try to sell it, you know, in order to get like bail bonds, for example, like how are we literally helping our community um, fight the police state? How do we fight the militarization of schools? You know, and these are fights that are, they're really, really big fights and we need money and we need time and we need bodies. Um, but we need to take all the small steps, you know? And so I always start with telling students, for example, when they're like, oh, well, I don't even know what to do. How do I not function in capitalism? Like, how do I survive? And it's like, it's little, right? Where does your money go? Who is it going for? Who makes your clothes? Can you follow the trail of your money? That's the very first thing. You know, like, are you buying from corporate um, stores and from, um, you know, are you, are you shopping from lo local stores? Are you getting your food from indigenous communities? Are you paying 
their worth? Are you paying the artists? Are you paying the indigenous and black people what they want, not what you think you should pay? Um, are we, you know, and the art is a really big part of it. Um, I study art on contested spaces. And so I look at like tattoos, I look at graffiti, I look at hip hop, you know, I look at things that are considered um, to be not allowed in some spaces. And so we need to reimagine those and kind of, you know, that's why I love graffiti so much and why I love set tattoos so much is because they do interrupt. They interrupt in a way that is subtle. Um, one of the things I, I keep trying to conceive of like what to call is um, I call it guerrilla discourse. And so, for example, a really easy example is like playing reggaeton in like a rich white neighborhood. You know, like you're interrupting their, their, their actual space, right? You're, you're interrupting it with music that they don't think should be there. Um, and also having these conversations about whiteness and white supremacy delusion um, in spaces where you're not supposed to have these conversations, you know, throw it in your academic shit, but then also throw it in your personal talk to your mom, abuelitas, you know, the ancestors. It is really tough. It, I have literally lost family members from having, trying to have conversations about anti-blackness. Um, and sadly, that's some, that's one of the things like, I just, I don't want to do it nicer. You know, I don't want to do it nicer. And I don't think that the way forward is to figure out, we have to find common ground, right? And we need a movement for solidaridad. Um, we need to keep pushing people to think of unity, um, but we don't need to tolerate just, you know, politeness and niceness. You know, we need to be very clear on like where we stand and how to uplift our people um, in material ways. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm not sure about, and then, you know, fuck professionalism. Um, we don't need any of those kind of standards and rubrics for, for living. Um, I didn't know if we had to be PG for this, but there it is. <laughs> One of the things I tell my students, um, like decolonizing should not make indigenous peoples puppets for your politics. That happens a lot. And so, and this is really hard for students to hear sometimes because they want to romanticize that there, there's a move to kind of find the origins of everything they like in indigenous communities. If we want to be genderqueer, it started with our indigenous peoples. If we love the earth, it's because our indigenous peoples love the earth and never heard it and every, you know, like indigenous peoples use the earth. <laughs> we live in, on earth and we, we use it. We hunt, we gather, we take care, but we that. use, we exploit the earth, right? Um, and so, so when your, your question, Francisco, and thank you so much for this, for this, um, tertulia, this plática, right, is what to be careful of is if you're reading something or engaged in something or seeing something that reconstructs indigenous people historically or in our contemporary period in ways that are not three-dimensional, complex, um, and also, you know, then, then they're constructing us for their own purposes and we really have to watch out for that because the, these histories are very complex. They're beautiful, they're rich, but we as humans, we are very complex people and we build very complex communities and we're not perfect. We don't have all the answers and we're not gonna be vessels of your particular liberal politics. So you, we really have to, so, they, so people have to really pay attention to, um, because, and this is, goes back to Alba's point earlier about who's in indigenous studies. Like when you really look at it, who's in the room? And surprisingly, very I few indigenous people. peoples. <laughs> <laughs> right. Why are they here? And what are they doing to us? 
you know, you know, like what are they doing with our stories? And so who are they citing? But most importantly, don't make us puppets and don't make us just simply, um, you know, Michelle Wolf Tio talks about the Caribbean as the savage slot of anthropology. Like we really need to unpack that for what it means for indigenous, for indigenous peoples. With that said, that is all the time that we have. Thank you everyone for joining us. For everyone at home, make sure you like the video, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and listen to our podcast platforms from Anchor, Spotify, and Apple Music. Also comment below and describe your path towards decolonizing and or indigenizing. What do you do? Then follow us on all our social media outlets at Latin underscore entertainment. That is Latin underscore entertainment. Join the Support Latina Business Facebook group and check out our IG lives every Tuesday and Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern time or 5 p.m. Pacific time. See you next week as we discuss mental health. All here on Conversamos. Yo, is it that wrong? I'm making a song, I'm taking it back for the platform that I formed. Music's helping me transform. I run the